It is the best-selling thriller about B.C. politics. It's topping the charts right across Canada. The two authors of A Matter of Confidence, Rob Shaw and Richard Zisman are in studio. Later in the show, we'll sit down with Premier John Horgan. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Kind of an overcast gray day here in Kamloops. Special show. Uh, really happy to be joined in studio this morning by both Richard Zussman and Rob Shaw. Morning, gentlemen. Thanks for having us on. Shane, it is good to be here. It's good to have you guys here. Not only because you're friends, but I, often I do this show in a completely empty studio, so it's just nice not to feel lonely. We drove all the way yeah, up We there. almost didn't make it. Uh, let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> now, you guys you guys live on Vancouver Island, where the only highway you really got to worry about is the crash-prone Malahat, which seems intent in driving down Metro Vancouver's livability ratings. Uh, but uh, last night, in the middle of the night, you guys had a big event at UBC. You left, what, 7.30, 8 o'clock, uh, you hit the Coca-Cola like about nine or something, and I got a message from <laughs> I got an email from Rob at eleven o'clock last night that was just laced with fear. <laughs> so what happened? You guys got baptized in the Coca-Cola last night. We made it. We're here. Yeah, I, there was snow. There was I, fog. There was rain. We we stopped at one point because we weren't sure what was going on. It was, it was interesting. It was, it was yeah. I think I, the people I here listening understand uh, about the Coca-Cola, but we didn't. And when we got we got to the summit, and we thought we were home free. We're like, this is easy. Well, that's where it starts. And then we started going down. And at one point, we couldn't see anything. And I, didn't, I said to Rob, I'm like, I don't even know if the car is moving anymore. <laughs> the snow is coming. And I couldn't even feel like we were going forward. And then the truck came flying beside us. I'm like, I guess we're not going as fast as that truck is. I, I promised to increase our Coca-Cola coverage at the Vancouver. <laughs> yeah. 400% when I get back to Victoria. You guys are playing it because when you arrived at my place last night, you guys were just like, oh, my God, what's with that highway? Yeah. And I joked, but I kind of think I'm serious now. Claire Trevena is somewhere right now having a coffee and a breakfast without realizing the hell that's about to come her way <laughs> yeah. as these two Victoria journalists discover the horrors of the Coca-Cola. So. I know. Seven-part series. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, I want to get into the book. Before I do that, we uh, we got you guys to sign a copy. Uh, first caller. Uh, here to Radio NL, the number is 250-372-2292, 250-372-2292. First caller to that number right now gets themselves a signed copy of A Matter of Confidence waiting for them at the front lobby here at Radio NL. Uh, guys, I don't, I've never written a book. I don't know what goes into writing a book. I can only imagine, I know from talking to you during the process, Rob, that, that you were really running uh, ragged there for about eight weeks. So uh, my question off the top is you, you guys put all this stuff into the book. You put all this hard work. Uh, you put it to bed. You send it out to the publisher. And at that point, there must be this weird mixture of relief and also anxiety. Like, okay, are people going to like it? You know. Uh, and now we're a couple weeks into the book being out. It's a bestseller. People are loving it. I read it. I think it's fantastic. So Rob, tell me a little bit about that sort of transition, the work of getting it done and then being like, okay, what's about to happen? And now that you look back and go, whoo. Yeah. Uh, well, it's intimidating because you think about writing a book, you know, it, it has to be the definitive account. Everything has to be in the book. You only get one chance to do it. It's this pressure on you. And uh, we were we only had eight weeks to do it. And in some ways, I'm glad because I think we could have worked on this book for years and never been satisfied. And we did the best we could. We scrambled. We got as much material. We did it at a really interesting point where there was a lot of raw feelings and emotion. It was, we were doing interviews in August, and the NDP had just kind of taken over government. The Liberals had just lost, uh, and people were still processing that internally. So I think we got a pretty unvarnished truth from a lot of people, and it was difficult to do. 
Um, but uh, I, I'm glad that people are reading it. We deliberately wrote a book that was not a history textbook. We, from the beginning, we were clear that we didn't want to do that. It's not footnoted. Hopefully, it's not boring. It's designed for people who maybe got interested in just a little bit of politics during the confidence vote. Mm. Like they were wondering what's going on down there. And, <laughs> and, or maybe during the HST and they want to they want to read an, a nice read on this crazy yeah. ride in BC politics. Yeah. And it is a nice read. Like it's not hoity-toity or, or 30,000 feet up. You guys have written it in a way that anybody can can read it and enjoy it. Uh, Richard, your, your voyage would have been more or less the same as Rob's, except in the middle of this thing, you lost your job. And I imagine that, that along with the similarities to Robin, kind of doing the book and wondering if it's going to be a success and all that kind of jazz, uh, having it being a success, I imagine there's a little bit of redemption or, or vindication in there for you. Sure. It's, it's amazing to see that people are enjoying it. A lot of the vindication came when I started working at Global BC. And they were incredible to me, and it's amazing to work with them and to work with Keith Baldry every day at the legislature. Yeah. And so a lot of vindication came then. But I knew we had a great book, and I knew that... Uh, we did incredible journalism and you're like Rob and I we love BC politics yeah. and we like to communicate that to people and what we did in this book is hopefully that is to show people what why decisions are made and who these people are more importantly that are making all these decisions another part about the anxiousness is these central characters in the book are people we have to go and speak to and cover every single day right and our jobs day-to-day -day jobs are paramount you know that's you know, what puts food on the table, and we do that every single day. And, and the book is a bonus, I think, and an extension of that work. But we needed to, you know, strike that fine balance where, you know, in our day-to-day -day jobs, we make politicians mad. <laughs> they're, they're not always happy about the things we say, and the book will be the same thing. Yeah. But I think we offered a fair, um, laid-out uh look at, at what unfolded, you know, leading up to that election and through the election. Were you worried when you guys did the book that, and I think you probably share the experience with me, I mean, we, we have relationships with a lot of these people, and what the fun part about the job for me is you get to know them as people, the politicians, the premier, whoever, uh, but then you also have to cover them, and often you get two different conversations when you sit down with them off the record, person to person, when you develop the relationship, than when you do when you turn the microphone on and start asking the questions. So, I mean, you filled the book up with, with fascinating backroom, uh, intricate detail. Was there a concern from you guys when you started this thing like oh my god i hope we don't get sort of the political chatter when we when we interview them i hope we get the real goods and we did and, and people were really forthcoming and we have to thank christy clark in part for that not only did she sit down with us and speak candidly about what she had experienced but she gave the permission to all her staff and former staff to do the same hmm. so all of them that wanted to do it she said go ahead and without those people, the story would not have been the same. John Horgan did the same and allowed his staff to speak to us as well. So that really opens up the doors to these private meetings, these moments. And I hope that when people read it, they get the same experience that you may get when you build a relationship with one of these politicians. Clearly, you build your relationships over time, mm. but I hope the reader can have a glimpse to feel like maybe they're sitting across the table from one of these politicians and learning who they are as an individual. You know, in the book at one point, you go inside Christy Clark's kitchen where she prepares toast for her son Hamish, or you go into, you know, the back rooms where John Horgan is or into his life. And, and Sonia and first to know his hotel bathroom. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and meet his wife, Ellie Horgan, you know, as they're lying in bed the night that John Horgan becomes premier. Yeah. I hope, you know, you're, you're welcomed into all these places to get to know who these people are. 
Yeah, and that's where the book really succeeds. And, and I mean, I, I cover politics, as you guys know, and I opened this thing up, and I found just a treasure trove of information I didn't know was going on behind the scenes. It's fascinating that way. Rob, when you were doing this thing and you're putting it, did you come across a story or an antidote or a detail back room that, I mean, you were the same as me. You covered this thing, and all of a sudden, here you are, and you went, oh, my God, I didn't know this was going on. Well, the, the story of the bridge tools was fascinating to me um, because I... I wrote a story during the election on the Liberal bridge toll policy and I talked to them before it came out and I put it in the newspaper and I didn't realize what was going on as soon as that story ran and we detail in the book how the NDP took a look at the paper that morning and read yeah. my story and then threw it on the ground, the NDP campaign manager <laughs> swore. And within three hours they developed a policy to completely scrap bridge tolls, totally, totally out of nowhere. And you know in the election we were wondering how, how long have they been considering Getting yeah. rid of bridge tools. Is that, did they really think that through? Is that like, was that, and no, they didn't. And, and we didn't realize it. We didn't realize what was happening behind the scenes. So there were little examples like that. I found it rewarding to go back all the way back to Gordon Campbell, who I covered, and to kind of talk to people about what was going on in his final days, because you heard lots of rumors and in the early days of Christy Clark and, and flesh out stuff that I, I remember being there and covering it, and then you go back and you get a whole different layer to it, and, yeah. and you kind of, like John Van Dongen, I remember him defecting from the yes. DC Liberal Party. I didn't realize as he was speaking in the House and announcing he was leaving, all the Liberal staff ran downstairs, gathered up all his belongings and threw him into a box and kicked it out into the hallway. And little details like that where I, I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of interesting. So. That, that's the rewarding part of the job is to be able to flesh that out a little bit. Got a quick question before the break. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, Richard, you're talking about people you deal with every day, and there's a concern you you know you don't want to burn them, but you also want to have a good book. Have you heard now that the book's out there? Have you heard from uh, any of the players, be it MLAs, party leaders, the premier, that kind of been like, oh, um, not so happy about this? Yes, <laughs> and I expect to hear more. And we've also heard of lots of people who are thrilled with the book, and I think that means we've done our job. Yeah. Yeah, we, were, we set out and realized that if, if John Horgan, Christy Clark, and Andrew Weaver didn't like the book, we're okay with that. Yeah. Because they often don't like our stories either. You know, they would prefer the book was written in a way that they would like, and that's not our job. Yeah. And they so. can write those books, and people can go buy Christy Clark's book that she writes about herself or Andrew Weaver's or John Horgan's. We weren't there to, to write that kind of book. But it was important <laughs> that we were fair and that we were, you know, that yeah. we didn't. Yeah. A lot of people said to us, well, what, you were really, you know, you didn't bury Christy Clark. Well, that's not the point of the yeah, book. Yeah. History will pass judgment on Christy Clark years from now. We just described what she did and, and, and why and a little bit behind the scenes. We didn't judge her uh, 10 years down the road. And you actually process. say that in the book, that it's going to take time to unfold to kind of judge her in a historical... And same with Premier John Horgan, yeah. obviously, as yeah. his job is unfolding as we speak. Okay, uh, let's take a quick commercial break. Uh, and on the other side, we'll continue our conversation with Rob Shaw and Richard Zussman. We'll also take your calls or your tweet questions. Uh, you can give us a shout at 250-374-5345. And we'll take your calls and more right here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. Uh, glad you could join us this morning. Real special show talking about uh, the BC political thriller Matter of Confidence. The two authors, Rob Shaw and Richard Zussman, here in studio. Uh, again, we're going to go to phones. We haven't done that a whole lot in the show, so really happy to take calls. 250-374-5345. Uh, I understand we already have a special caller on the line, uh, former Kamloops North MLA and Health Minister Terry Lake. Terry, how are you? Well, I'm great. I don't know if I'm that special, uh, Shane. <laughs> well, according to the book, you are. You play all sorts of special roles. <laughs> Hi, Terry. 
Hey, guys, how are you? Good, Good, Terry, how are you? Good to hear from you. So, how'd you like the book? I loved it, and I, I'm sorry I couldn't be in Kamloops uh, uh, to have you guys sign it for me, but, you know, I, I think it's a great book. You did a, a really good job, for the most part. So we were all surprised to open the book, Terry, and realize that you pitched a health payroll tax at some point. Uh, yes, I did. It was uh, a little bit different than what's been proposed by the NDP, much better, more comprehensive, Uh and, uh, yeah, it was, it was something that I thought was important. And, you know, you get a chance to put those things forward. You don't always win those battles. Uh, and that's the case for people like Todd Stone, who, uh, you know, I think uh, comes off as if he didn't uh, do as good a job as, as I know he did. Uh, and I guess that's part, partly why I wanted to call in is to just say that uh, Todd knew his files, uh, not just knew them, really understood them, better than anybody in cabinet and um you know at times got the rug pulled out from under him and i so i think if there's anything in the book it would have been a a better treatment of of my buddy todd because uh you know at times he uh i think was mischaracterized maybe by other people in government but uh, he had a tough tough file that was changing on him all the time how much did todd pay you to make this call terry <laughs> well he <laughs> the red collar every once in a while yeah. hey uh you're a political guy you've obviously been in the trenches on this thing when you read the book was uh, you i know you didn't run in the campaign but you've run in previous campaigns uh was there anything in the book about some of the backroom details be it from the liberals be it from the ndp be it from the greens that, that you raised your eyebrow at uh, well, you know, you kind of have a sense of what's going on behind the scenes. But even for us that were on the front lines, um, you know, what happens in the premier's office often is uh, not transparent to the rest of us. Uh, and sometimes if you've got a really busy file like uh, Todd had or I had, you know, you're keeping your head down doing your work and you're not necessarily aware of all the ins and outs and the, uh, you know, the machinations behind the scenes. And um, the book did a really, really good job of, of opening that window into those backroom discussions uh, so that someone like me even was surprised by some of them. Yeah, you know, uh, it's a good book. Todd Stone is a great guy, and he had two unwinnable files in government that were not problems of his own making. I mean, the Metro Vancouver Transit issue was a premier, Christy Clark, who seemed to want to fight with the mayors. She didn't really want to listen to the lower mainland mayors, and Todd Stone was forced to go out there, and we talk about it a bit in the book, and just get kind of wailed on <laughs> by the mayors. And that, and on, that, Uber, on Uber, too. And on Uber as well. And, you know, he, he was he, there was a lot of powerful people lobbying the premier's office with connections to the premier's office in the in the private sector who were pushing for uber who kind of forced um ministers like todd stone to have to change direction abruptly depending on the whims of the premier's office so it's a tough job you know uh, uh i i don't know from doing it but terry certainly knows to have to de detail your own ministry and what you want to do versus what the premier wants to do and then what the really influential people telling the premier what she should do uh, to do. So it's a, but Todd Stone's a good guy. We have a lot of time for him, and I think he did a pretty good job too. Terry, you told me once, and I asked you what life like it was like in politics. You told me that uh, you go in there every day, you fight the good fight, and occasionally you win. That's always stuck with me, and it seems when I read the book, there's a, there's a good dollop of that. Yeah, it is true, and um, you know, for someone like Todd. Uh, he had some big wins, you know, the port strike. He uh, worked with Jerry Diaz. He worked with the federal government and really put a lot of work into that. Whereas on other files, he w really was whipsawed back and forth, as, as Rob just mentioned. And ICBC was the same. You know, that's, that was a bit of an unwinnable uh, file 
because of the powerful lobby of uh, lawyers that, you know, like the system the way it is. And um, so that th- those are tough, tough files. Uh, and, uh, you know, even the NDP are going to struggle with that one. They're going to struggle with Uber. There's no magic solution, political solution to some of those issues. All right. Terry, pleasure. Thank you, sir. Well, nice to talk to you guys, and uh, best of luck with the book. Thanks for writing it. Thanks, Terry. It's good to hear from you. Yeah, Terry, thanks so much for calling in. There we go. Uh, former Health Minister, Camelot's North MLA, Terry Lake. Uh, we got a t- uh, question on Twitter uh, from Jasmine Bodine, uh, Bodan, maybe. Uh, she says, uh, there may have been instances where two interviewees' accounts of an event contradicted one another. Uh, how did you guys reconcile which version of that event made it into the book? Yeah, there were a bunch of them where there were two people involved in a conversation, and the two people we interviewed told two completely different stories about <laughs> the exactly same meeting. Andrew Weaver and Christy Clark were a good example so, of that. So the meeting that they had had the day of the confidence vote when Andrew Weaver went into Christy Clark's office at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and the vote was going to take place at about 5, 5.30 and she made the final pitch and we eventually after hearing two totally different versions of the same conversation asked them both again about it and got the closest to the truth as we could in terms of what was said in that meeting and we detail Clark's final pitch and and uh, Weaver turning her down and then going in and voting uh, to bring her government down. But sometimes, though, we t- we couldn't get there. Right. Like, on Uber, to carry on the Uber, we yeah. couldn't. Yeah. It, we talked to Todd Stone, we talked to Christy Clark, we talked to Peter Fassbender, we talked to other... And we got, like, three different versions of who said what to the taxi industry, and we eventually we just put it down like that in a paragraph, you know, that they remember it these different ways. And Uber was such a messy file <laughs> that we just decided it'd be better just to say people come at it from different points of view rather than trying to find the truth because they may all honestly remember it differently which is another reason why i'm glad we did the book now because a year from now two years from now things get a little bit fuzzier fuzzier, and it's harder to find was there anything that was so you just kind of said okay we can't even put this in the book we can't verify it at all yeah there were a few things and you know it, it would time more details may emerge and you know cabinet documents are sealed for 20 years and some former ministers were willing to discuss some things but most of them wouldn't say anything about what unfolded in cabinet and and they signed confidentiality documents to do that and so we don't really know exactly uh, what was said in those meetings and and that only takes time until we start actually being able to look at those documents we didn't you know this book is a first right of history yeah it's not like the book that David Mitchell did on W.A.C. Bennett, which, you know, he interviewed him for hundreds of hours. He had all his personal yeah. papers. He had all the cabinet documents. That's a definitive account of the decisions and the policies. This book is not that. This book is a look at the characters uh, to help you better understand, I think, why and how decisions are made. So are we going to see any revisions of some of these new details emerge, Rob? Are we going to see a different version of a matter of confidence a decade from now? I don't know. Matter of confidence, too. Confidence harder. (laughs) There were some frustrating parts. Like, I I always wanted to know a full list of the people in the 801 club that was lobbying to bring Christy Clark down. Diane Watts, I know, has been allegedly We phoned a lot of people on that and and got a lot of, oh, I didn't didn't have anything to do with that, and I don't know who was. And, you know, and, and it was very, we realized that pretty quickly we could sink dozens of hours into that and not come up because people just weren't going to be honest with us about it. So we just had to abandon some of those topics because they were they were time sinks and we didn't have a lot of time. Okay, uh, let's take a quick break, get caught up to the news at the bottom of the hour. We'll continue our conversation with Richard and Rob on the other side and uh, take your calls if you have them, 250-374-5345 here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. 
Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Camlings Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back. Pleasure to be in studio with uh, Rob Shaw and Richard Zisman. Uh, guys, uh, matter of confidence. One of the things that struck me about that book were the tiny things where something would have changed a little bit and would have drastically affected the outcome possibly. And I think of things like um, if the Liberals, when they were in government, and I believe it was Mary Polak, as environment minister, would have paid more attention to the Shawnigan Lake thing, which burned Sonia first to know, which of course played a pivotal thing. Uh, if Christy Clark had come out of the lieutenant governor's house and said something different than what she did say, like the book seems full of moments where if somebody had, or I Am Linda is another good example, if somebody had just chosen a slightly different tack, said something different, done something just a little bit different, we possibly could have a whole different scenario right now. And the fourth is this meeting between John Horgan and David Eby a year before the election, where there was a lot of talk that David David Eby was going to be the guy after Horgan lost the 2017 election and come in, and there was a lot of pressure building, and Eby was doing a ton of events in Metro Vancouver, growing a huge profile. Vancouver Magazine did their top 50 most powerful people in the city, and Christy Clark was one, Eby was fourth, and Horgan was in the teens, and Horgan's... Uh, staff, his team around him, told Eby to cool it. So, you know, you're st stealing all the attention from the leader. We need the leader to hit on these issues. And then Horgan and Eby met, and Horgan said to him, if you think you can be a better leader now, a year before the election, I'll step away. And Horgan canvassed far and wide and, and asked a lot of people if they thought they could do a better job. Uh, and Eby said, I, I can't. It's you. You're the guy. They went ahead and Horgan won the election. So that one would have been a huge pivot, obviously, a different leader. And then you mentioned the other one, Sonia Furstenau. Uh, she had this deep hatred for the B.C. Liberals yeah. and a huge dislike for Christy Clark because she believes that government did not do anything to prevent uh, contaminated soil around Shawnigan Lake where she was a local representative and she was a community member yeah. and she fought hard and that pushed her into politics. And, and then it, it also gave significant fuel to Andrew Weaver. Maybe if that issue had been put to bed, maybe Andrew Weaver might not have won his riding, right? And, so and there's a double-edged sword there. Exactly. And recruited first and now and then there she was at the negotiating table and that's one of the reasons why the Liberals didn't send Christy Clark to the negotiating table because they thought it would backfire on them because first and now had such a strong dislike for her. And and ultimately... It threw up in the bathroom over the whole deal. You know. The stress, right? Yeah. The incredible public pressure of thinking that she may have to support the Liberals. And, you know, there's a lot in there about Weaver and her having conversations. And he asked her, can you actually have an unbiased opinion here about the Liberals? And she said, yes, I can. I'm thinking about the best policies. And, and I do believe that to be true. But it also showed the immense personal pressure on her to make that decision. Uh, former Premier Christy Clark, uh, which is a fascinating character in and of herself. Um, why didn't women like her, Rob? Which, oh. And I know Christy takes this personally because she did a lot of stuff to, to kind of break some glass ceilings in that front. But, And I remember, like, you, you tweet anything about Christy Clark, and, and women would respond probably to you, to me, in droves and just trash her. And I think that kind of hurt her deeply. But what's going on there? Why, why did they not like her? Yeah, we have a whole chapter in the book just on the idea of Christy Clark as this trailblazing, you know, glass ceiling shattering strong female leader. Um, and the fact that she inspired a visceral reaction, especially amongst women, of just dislike. And that despite her significant accomplishments on promoting, um, you know, women's issues, putting women in top positions in her government, 
uh, mentoring young women in her office, she didn't get a lot of credit for it. And that may be one of the things that when time passes in history, we look back on differently. But she was such a polarizing figure. And for some people, whether it be teachers or people and uh, you know, social workers, or there's whole sectors of the of the uh, uh, province who just seem to hate Christy Clark because of the way that the government had, had treated them. And uh, especially amongst women, she just, her polling was abysmal. And she felt, you know, like it wasn't a fair shake that the, um, you know, feminist establishment or the academics who would uh, come to the defense of, of her were more left-leaning and they didn't back her up quite a bit. And that she got a lot of sexist comments and a lot of comments on her appearance. And I remember one about her dress and her cleavage yeah, at one point, David Shrek, yeah. which we have in the book, and that um, she was stuck in a no-win situation. Sometimes she'd push back, like Richard Branson once uh, tweeted out, uh, the famous mm-hmm. billionaire, a picture of uh, him and, and a woman uh, kite surfing and, and made a comment about how the premier should naked kite surf with him. Yeah. And, and she shot back with a line, well, I guess that's why your company's called Virgin, with pickup lines <laughs> like that. And people liked it. But then she was asked a rude comment on air once on a radio station and played with the joke. Right. And people were like, why didn't you put that person in? So it, she, there was a lot of no wins for her. And I know she feels like she didn't get a, a fair shake on it. But that's one of my favorite chapters in the book uh, about gender and, and politics. And I, I think it was an interesting thing to write. Uh, let's talk about Premier John Horgan, because the other interesting character arc there is this guy, and you guys heard, uh, I talked to John uh, after the next break, but it was a pre-recorded interview, so I played it for you. But um, So this guy who is, you know, kind of, we, he didn't want to be leader, he didn't run in the leadership race, kind of got acclaimed and nobody else was there, um, had to kind of tame the lion inside of him and all this kind of stuff. But And it's really noticeable. I mean, John Horgan, prior to the election, John Horgan in the campaign, you see this kind of this kind of shift. And John Horgan now, who Von Palmer is, is titled the happy warrior. I mean, there's a dynamic change there. There is. And the book details that change. Let me tell you quickly a story that's not in the book, because mm. I want to save some good parts of the book and not give it away too much. But I interviewed uh, Horgan just before the election to do a profile piece on him and, and the other leaders. And we went and played disc golf in this area behind his house. And when we were all finished, um, I interviewed his wife as well to get a sense of who he was. And we walked down to the vehicle and we were chit-chatting. And he asked me how I was feeling. And I said, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm moving to Vancouver for the campaign away from my family. I said, how are you feeling? And he's like, I'm nervous as well. I've never done this before. <laughs> I'm worried about, you know, not eating three square meals a day. I get grumpy and angry when I don't have my meals at noon and at six and in the morning. And then I, you know, I'm not sure when I'm going to sleep and the stress is going to be high and I'm going to miss Ellie, my wife, because she's really my rock. And I remember thinking, this is a real human being yeah. who feels the same pressures that all of us do in life. And you saw that lack of confidence grow into uh, confidence to be able to govern and and part of the title my wife Lisa used as a reporter who you're friends with as well and yes. worked with at uh, NW and she's an NW reporter and Lisa came up with the title a matter of confidence and we both thought it was sort of perfect because it's not just about the confidence vote but the overconfidence of Christy Clark and you know the emergence of Horgan getting confidence in himself yeah and I think that's part of what you need to think about when you read the book is this is a guy who through a campaign which is the most stressful time a politician can be in 28 straight days of pitching to voters he found his inner self and showed he could govern and then it took a few more months until he was finally able to get the premier's job because of the confidence vote in the negotiations and everything but i think you saw a real emergence and a change in him as an individual Okay, uh, last question to you, Rob. Uh, the other interesting aspect that I sort of read into the book was I got a sense that John Horgan and the NDP, at some point during negotiations with the Greens, kind of thought, okay, 
we got these guys in a corner. We don't really have to, you know, sell the bank on this whole thing. Yeah, that was, you know, I think once, once the NDP realized that it wasn't feasible for the Greens to consider the Liberals, like there would be a revolt within the Greens, they didn't really have to offer that much uh, to get the deal. They just kind of had to wait it out. And there's an anecdote in the book of John Horgan um, showing up uh, days before we knew that uh, there was actually a deal and internally hugging his uh, press secretary and saying, we've done it. And, and they, they knew that they had the inside track and that they were they were getting really close. And, and it, you know, the Liberals, it depends on who you ask. Christy Clark doesn't feel like there was ever a chance of getting that deal with the Greens. Uh, but at the beginning, it, Andrew Weaver certainly leaned more towards the Liberals than the NDP. You remember, the NDP and uh, Greens hated each other in the election <laughs> yeah. campaign. So it's taken a lot of work to rebuild that relationship. And it's still an undercurrent of tension just a little bit in the in the legislature that we have now. So it's something to keep an eye on as you watch politics going forward. All right. Uh, last but not least, you guys are doing a book signing. When, where, where can we find you? 130 chapters here in Kamloops. Uh, and we'll be there for a few hours. Please come by, sign the book, come say hi, we'll chat politics. Awesome stuff. Uh, guys, uh, your friends, so uh, on, a, on, a, on a personal level, on a professional level, your colleagues and people that, that I admire very much in this profession, and I just feel so... Uh, incredibly proud that, that you not only did the project, but you wrote a hell of a good book, and I really enjoyed it. I encourage people to go out and buy it. So uh, really good to see you, and, and super congratulations on your success. Thanks for having us on. It's great to be here in yeah. person. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Thanks fantastic. for having us, and we got to stay at your house last night, so that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> stay longer next time. All right, we'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics and Radio NL. On the other side, Premier John Horgan. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Always a pleasure to have a sit down and talk to Premier John Horgan, who luckily enough is in studio with us this morning. How are you? Good. Great to be back in Kelms on a beautiful sunny day. You uh, spent some time this week. Uh, <laughs> spent some time this week in Merritt and Kamloops. Uh, what were you doing? Well, we started in Penticton. Uh, I visited uh, the West Wing, not no connection to politics <laughs> there, but the West Wing of the uh, Penticton Lakeshore Resort. Well, Lakeside Resort, rather, uh, and they built this new wing, six stories uh, tall, with uh, structure lamb products. This is this is engineered wood products right from Okanagan Falls. This is going to transform building with wood in British Columbia and, in fact, around the world. So I was there during the election campaign about a year ago. I saw them as they were coming from the ground up, and it was yeah. great to go and uh, spend a night in the new uh, one of the new ho hotel rooms and then get a tour from the designer and from the company that built it. So we started the tour there, uh, went into the Okanagan, uh, down south uh, through into Oliver to celebrate uh, Wine Month. April is now Wine Month in BC. There might be some connections to <laughs> wine in some of your questions <laughs> later, Shane. But it was an opportunity to celebrate what is an extraordinary story of economic renewal on our agricultural land in the Okanagan. Of course, I'm a, a huge uh, fruit fan. I love cherries, and I don't want to see tree fruit be pushed out by vineyards but mm. we've had extraordinary success with our wine industry over the past 25 years and we were there to celebrate that Lana Popham and I and then up to uh to Princeton to talk to people there about the challenges they're facing in a small rural community that needs to have the same services that we expect in bigger locations like Kamloops, up to Merritt to visit with the Upper and Lower Nicola First Nations to talk about alternative energy programs that they're working on there and to talk about reconciliation and it was uh, so far so good. Okay, good. Um, we're talking on the show today about A Matter of Confidence, a book 
Uh, it took me two sittings, would have been one, but uh, if it wasn't for the wife and the child interrupting all my time. <laughs> uh, riveting book. Uh, yeah. I'm really interested to know your take on it being sort of a central quote-unquote character in this whole thing. Well, firstly, you're absolutely right. It's a great read. The, the, Rob Shaw's a good writer. Richard Zuzman, uh, who's a TV radio guy, uh, worked with Rob uh, on, on the context of the book, and it's, it's an exciting read. As someone who uh, studied history growing up and in university, I felt at the election last year that someone ought to write a book about this. Mm -hmm. And literally the next day, uh, Zuzman and Shaw came in and said, hey, we're going to write a book about uh, this transition from the old government to a new government. And they went back to, uh, I don't want any spoiler alerts in the book, (laughs) but people who lived it know that the government changed last year. And it was an extraordinary time, uh, uh, something that hasn't happened in, in Canada or British Columbia in over 50 years, that a government fell on a vote of confidence and then a new government was installed uh, after an election had been held. And then we have now a, um, a working minority government that has uh, delivered two budgets. Uh, we're, we're working hard to make life better for British Columbians. And so the transition from one government to another government happened in the way it was supposed to happen based on our constitution and our longtime practices. And I have to say, Sean, uh, Sean. Shane, sorry, <laughs> full marks, full marks to uh, Judith Gushon, our current lieutenant governor who's uh, going to be stepping down in the yeah. weeks ahead who handled with grace and dignity a very challenging situation. And uh, the book recounts how she went through, all the steps that she went through. So it's a good read, and uh, it it speaks to uh, what the great part about our democracy here is, that governments can change even under extraordinary circumstances, and life goes on. And help make people understand how it works, which is my big pet peeve, because a a lot of people are like, well, how is this happening? Or I even heard that word illegitimate, uh, which is, you know, people didn't seem to understand the system. But anyway, that's beside the point. Well, that speaks to the need to invest more in our public education system to understand how a British parliamentary system works. And uh, I heard heard a lot of that as well uh, at around the time of the change, but uh, not so much anymore. I think the only people that are grumbling now are the hardcore partisans, Mm. but the public goes, yeah, that's good. That's cool what happened there. Mm. They have a better understanding of the role of the speaker. They have a better understanding of of how we form governments in Canada and in other British parliamentary democracies. So the book is a good illustration of what was an extraordinary time. Uh, I'm curious to know how you felt. It must have been weird reading a book where you're the sort of dominant character in this thing, you and, and of course, Christy Clark. But um, what I got out of it was a guy who was it was almost a reluctant leader who had some self-doubts, uh, who had to make some sort of changes internally uh, to sort of transform and transition into what is now Premier John Horgan. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, Shane, you're, I, don't, I didn't have any self-doubts. I w- I'm very confident that I know what I'm doing and I had a plan. Uh, but the NDP has a track record of losing elections. Mm. And you go back, we've only won a few elections over the history going back to the 1930s. So I wanted to make sure as we led into the election campaign, when there was uncertainty about what the outcome would be, you'll remember back in 2013, the NDP was supposed to win in a walk and we were going to take all of the seats. And, and we didn't. Christy Clark won the election and the government stayed the same. So I wanted to make sure that there were no uh, no doubts in the minds of other people. And so I became leader uh, by acclamation, you'll remember yep. the leadership contest lasted a couple of weeks and the, Mike Farnworth uh, joined me and, and I became the leader. And so as we got closer to the election, I wanted to make sure that everyone had an opportunity to say their piece about where we were going and what, what the right course of action would be. But personal doubts, I had none. I, I felt confident that, that I could bring a leadership style to the NDP and to government that was practical, that was pragmatic, and focused on the things that matter to people. I'm a people person. I like to be around people. And I think that the more people get to know the values that I have and the values that the NDP 
have represented for decades, they'll be more comfortable with us in government. One of the other, as a, as a, and no one's going to be surprised by this, but I mean, I'm a, I'm a bit of a political follower and love politics. Uh, one of the interesting things to me was finding a lot of the backroom detail that I didn't know was going on, and I'm sure a lot of others didn't either. But one of them was this interplay between you and Mr. Eby prior to the election and uh, what sounded like a, a meeting to kind of smooth things out. How serious was that situation, and how close were you to saying, you know what, if you want to take this job, then, then I'm fine with that? Well, sir, first of all, uh, I think they might have overplayed uh, that meeting uh, with David. David was someone who I had a lot of time for when mm -hmm. he first came into the caucus. He beat Christy Clark in a tough seat in Vancouver. Uh, he's a very, very solid guy, hardworking. And I piled him up with a lot of files in opposition. And uh, when there, the, the, the rumors started swirling that uh, my chief of staff went off to work in Alberta, ironically, for Rachel <laughs> Notley. And uh, so I was looking around for someone to help move the boat along. And, and uh, so there was, well, uh, is Horgan going to be able to pull this off and all of this other chatter? But it was li literally chatter. But David was an obvious heir apparent. So I just called him in and said, do you want to do this? And he said, no, man, it's, it's all on you. He's, David's got a young child at home. As he and his partner just got married, yeah. starting their family. And uh, we, we have had a very solid relationship. He, in fact, co-chaired my campaign to become leader. So uh, there was doubt, as you say. There was rumors going around. So I just called him in, and we had a conversation. And then we took off from there. He continued to pound away on the housing issue in the Lower Mainland, pound away on liquor reform. And now, of course, we're seeing from his work as Attorney General uh, money laundering uh, in our uh, mm. casino sector that the government apparently was turning a blind eye to. We're receiving a report from a consultant in the next number of weeks uh, that will uh, open that up for the public to see. But David is a very hardworking guy, extraordinarily hardworking, and I'm proud to have him on my team, and I think he's pretty happy with the way things turned out. I do want to get to some other issues, but I'm actually fascinated to get an answer to this question. Again, as a primary character in this, you would have seen it from your perspective in the moment of the election cycle and obviously you know, becoming premier. Uh, reading the book and kind of seeing so quickly after the fact some behind-the-scenes things from the other camps, was there anything in there that, that you went, whoa? Well, I, I was, I have to say, during the campaign, I was surprised at how tepid the Liberals were. Their kind of sense, well, we'll just stand pat. Mm. We got a pair of twos here. Let's let's play it through. <laughs> and and we were out there doing the things that people were asking us to do. That we talked about being bold, about bringing forward initiatives that would make life better for people. I think the biggest uh, issue for us to to capitalize on during the campaign was the BC Liberals indifference to public education. Now, public education doesn't always poll high on issues of concern. People are always it's always pocketbook issues. Am I going to be able to have enough money to feed the family, meet the rent, you know, make sure the mortgage is taken care of, whatever, whatever concerns people about those pocketbook issues. But everyone knew that something was wrong with public education, and the liberals were just tone deaf to that. And when the Supreme Court said in 22 minutes, not like, not like over a couple of months, like at, well, the, 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 uh, the lawyer for the government was making their case. Yeah. They said, no, no, you're wrong. You've been violating rights for 16 years, and you have to stop it. And that, I think, was a, an issue the book doesn't touch upon so much, but I was surprised that the liberals were so toned deaf to the importance of education. Yeah, and I'm going to show you a little graph here, and we'll get on some other issues. This is a brochure handed over the Kamloops Thompson School District to demonstrate the level of investment in other sort of like-minded districts. You can see there with the graph, it's you know way down way the low. charts. Absolutely. And I, you were no stranger to the things going on here. We haven't had an announcement yet, John, but as the premier of this province, uh, there's a need here. 
We, we don't want kids in portables. We don't want them in broken down schools. We got lead in the water. We got all this stuff going on. I, I know you, everyone's asking you for some money. Yeah. So I get the realities of the situation, but uh, is there going to be some help coming for this school district anytime soon? Well, again, I'm sa- sad to say, stay tuned, uh, Shane, because we, we have a capital budget of $15 billion over the next three years. That's going to be building uh, four-laning Highway 1 uh, east of here towards the uh, Alberta border. That's going to be going into transit in the lower mainland. It's going to be going into the revitalization of the inland hospital. It's going to be going into a whole range of other issues, and it's going to be going into school improvements here in Kamloops and right across the province. But it's an agenda, and we have to parcel that money out, not all at once, but over the, the cycle of the budget, which is a three-year budget cycle. Now, that when I say three years, I don't want people to go, oh my gosh, they're not going to say anything until uh, 2021. Uh, we're working on this. Rob Fleming, uh, the Minister of Education, knows the issues in Kamloops very, very well. And I have every confidence that there'll be good news coming soon. All right. Um, extra billing by doctors declared illegal by your Health Minister Adrian Dix today. Uh, an interesting move considering uh, the struggle between the public system and the for-profit system. Does this signal, John, uh, a little bit of a tougher stance against those private clinics from your government or no? Well, it does. And of course, the, the tough stand was initiated back in 2003 by the Campbell government that brought in legislation, but didn't bring into force an ability to make sure that we didn't have a two-tier system developed with uh, private billing or, or double billing by uh, certain uh, physicians for certain procedures. So Adrian uh, Dix has put down a marker today uh, based on input from the federal government. As they've looked, they do audits periodically of um, how BC is managing its medical services plan and are we delivering the services at the uh, prescribed way uh, uh, consistent with the Canada Health Act. And, and so we did put down a marker today and I'm, I'm certain that there will be more debate about that. But I have to say last night in Princeton, the number one issue in that small community is healthcare. And the number one issue is healthcare mm-hmm. because they don't want to see a two-tier system developing. They want to make sure that the public system that they, many of these people there were seniors, that have, they've been counting on since the 1960s is going to be there for the next generation. And I think Adrian's got a, a good sense of where we're going on that. As you know, he knows this file very, very well, and I couldn't be happier with having him at the helm of the health ministry. So you do not want a two-tier system in this province? No, no, not at all. I think we've taken some initiatives on uh, knee and hip replacements, for example. Mm-hmm. There'll be more announcements to come, but we've had... Um, the first announcement was in the Lower Mainland, and there's five uh, health authorities. Of course, Kamloops uh, in the heart of uh, Interior Health. Uh, and we're going to be putting in resources to get the wait times for knee and hip replacement surgeries as low as we can possibly get them. And by doing that, that frees up more surgical time for other procedures. That means we're going to get people through. We're going to get them back to a quality of life that not only is good for them, but it's good for the community. If people are healthy and active, that means they're more, uh, they're more likely to have a greater con- contribution to the economy and the social well-being and the cultural well-being of the community. And that means making sure that we don't have people languishing on wait lists while they're in excruciating pain. Knee and hip is the first place to start. Actually, we started with dental surgery for uh, for p- vulnerable people. But then uh, Adrian's got a whole plan he's going to be rolling out over the next 18 months. Okay. Uh, last issue, Trans Mountain Pipeline. I know this is sort of a twists and curves and all sorts of things going on there, and, and not the least of which is the province next door. Uh, Rachel Notley is going to take her budget tour to uh, Toronto, New York, places like that. I know Carol James does something similar. Uh, but she is, is touting drumming up support for Trans Mountain Pipeline. Um, can you manage this conflict with Alberta? And in, and in the final scope of things, can this question only be resolved in the Supreme Court of Canada? 
Well, that's my expectation, uh, Shane. We have had, uh, we've been pretty clear since we were elected, in fact, leading up to the election, that we don't believe that the twinning of the Trans Mountain Pipeline for export, which is what we're talking about here, and I think your listeners need to be reminded that we're not moving uh, diluted bitumen into the lower mainland so that we can refine it and make life better for British Columbians. We're getting it to the coast so we can send it somewhere else. That's akin in my world to exporting raw logs. And if we had spent half the time talking about getting new refining capacity in Alberta or British Columbia that we spent trying to build this pipeline. I think we'd be in a much better place. Gas prices would be lower. There would be more jobs and more economic economic opportunity in BC and in Alberta. Having said all of that, we're involved in two court proceedings right now. One with the federal court with respect to the NEB National Energy Board decision to proceed. We believe, and Thomas Berger uh, noted uh, former judge noted lawyer uh, is taking our case that we don't believe that the right the, the risks of this process were adequately addressed by the National Energy Board. Uh, I think that's a compelling case and that could end the thing right there. The second piece is a jurisdictional question that arose out of our desire to do a consultation on how do we respond to spills. And now I know that, that, that the interior has a different perspective on this than the people on the coast. Yes. And I think the people on the coast understand that and the people in the interior understand that. But the coast belongs to all British Columbians, in fact, all Canadians. And I want to make absolutely sure when I'm in the, the, the chair of leadership in the province of British Columbia that I'm doing everything I can to protect our, our coast and, and everything that goes with that. That's not just our environment, that's our coastal economy as well. And I believe that the Prime Minister who believes that this project is in the national interest, should be coming to British Columbia, not for flyby visits and fundraisers, but to sit down and talk to British Columbians and explain why he thinks that the plan that they have right now is the best plan for British Columbia, because I would prefer to see our natural resources developed here in the interest of Canadians. Okay. Proper viewing order for the Star Wars movies? Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, well, listen, I just, uh, we just went through a long weekend and I did watch a lot of Star Wars, I have to tell you. And you know what? I think the best one after uh, uh, the first three is uh, Rogue One. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, which the is the prequel one. of Maul. And, yeah. and I, I, I worked my way through the latest <laughs> one and, and I watched the Luke go down in a, a heap of clothing like uh, Obi-Wan did. And I thought to myself, man, oh, man. I'm going to watch Rogue One again. It's way better. <laughs> Thank you, John. Appreciate Good to the see time you, as always. That was Premier John Horgan. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics, and then we'll flip to the other side of the political coin. B.C. Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson will join us. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Camlin's Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by BC Liberal Leader Andrew Wilkinson. Uh, always good to chat with you. How are you doing? Oh, fine. It's a great day in British Columbia and looking forward to a bright future. All right. I know uh, where you guys stand on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, I just played a clip for you of the Premier John Horgan uh, throwing what I would probably refer to as a pretty big dart at the Prime Minister uh, as he visits the province. Uh, sort of your immediate reaction to that and, and that issue. Well, John Horgan uh, continues to pick fights with people he doesn't need to. Now he's uh, kind of personally calling out the Prime Minister. That's not going to help British Columbia. That's not going to get any interest of British Columbia as advanced in Ottawa. And we've got a lot of work to do. We have infrastructure projects to deal with uh, with Ottawa. We have our ongoing um, health uh, system uh, issues that we deal with with Ottawa. And so it's important for us to be on very good terms. And if he's decided to start personally insulting the Prime Minister, that's not going to help British Columbia one little bit. Um, the NDP government is probably on the wrong side of history about this Trans Mountain Pipeline. 
It's been approved by the Structured National Energy Board. British Columbia put forward five conditions, all of which the federal government agreed to, including $1.5 billion for marine protection that we don't have otherwise, and yet the Horgan government has decided to turn it into a political football and, and pick fights with Ottawa. This did not work in the 1990s for Glenn Clark, and it's not going to work for John Horgan today. That said, Andrew, should the Prime Minister, and I know Rachel Notley has, has called for him to, I don't know if intervene is the right word, but uh, to enforce his government's will in the jurisdiction issue and, and get this pipeline built, should he be stronger on the issue in, in that regard or no? Well, the federal government does have the option under the Constitution of Canada of declaring a project to be in the national interest, and they haven't gone that far yet. I think they're hoping that cooler heads will prevail in British Columbia. But uh, the fact that um, Premier Horgan has now got a fight going with uh, the government of Alberta, uh, the Premier of Saskatchewan is annoyed with him, and the federal government is quite annoyed with him, and his uh, environment minister, George Heyman, is doing whatever he pleases. That's not good for British Columbia or our reputation with other governments in terms of getting things done. You have to remember that Western Canada is a pretty big and diverse and integrated economy. We're the only port on the Pacific Ocean, and so the Prairie Provinces like to have good relationships with us, and they um, help out when we have issues we want to advance uh, federally in that the Western Premiers get together regularly and have to be on the same page of how to deal with Ottawa and the other provinces. All and right. if John Horgan's busy just burning off his goodwill at this kind of fast pace, I mean, he hasn't even been office for a year. Already he's destroyed all these relationships. Uh, on, the, on the refining issue uh, on, this, on this pipeline uh, controversy, Andrew, should we be talking about more refining space, perhaps maybe a new refinery? Is that part of the argument that it's MIA or no? Well, nobody's going to be talking about any publicly owned refinery. That's completely off the table. So you have to think, well, who in the private sector wants to put refining capacity and where would it be? There's huge refining capacity in Edmonton, uh, less so in Calgary. Uh, there's huge refining capacity on the Texas Gulf Coast because refineries are very hard to set up and to locate, and only the major petroleum companies will go into it. There are four very large refineries just south of the border here uh, from Vancouver at Birch Bay and Anacortes in Washington. They've been receiving uh, crude oil from Alaska by tanker every day for the last 45 years. They now get crude oil also from North Dakota down the Columbia River by rail car. And this has somehow escaped the attention of the B.C. government. So in our neighborhood, that is between Edmonton and Anacortes, there's a lot of refining capacity. But the NDP have decided, without talking to any of the oil companies, that they are unilaterally going to come up with a brilliant scheme to build oil refining capacity here in British Columbia. That would take billions of dollars in capital. You have to establish where the market is, who the purchaser is. And this is stuff the NDP don't seem to care about. Just on a the flick of a wrist, they say, oh, it's time to build refining capacity in B.C. Well, where would that be in Metro Vancouver where the demand is? You tell me which community wants an oil refinery built in its backyard. Yeah, good point. Uh, on the healthcare front, uh, the big political news of the week is uh, the province making extra billing by doctors illegal. Obviously, a, a line in the sand concerning privatized healthcare. John Horgan telling me uh, his government is absolutely opposed to a two-tier healthcare system and it's going to make their presence felt in that arena. Uh, your thoughts on that development? Well, let's get this straight. It's been the case for more than 20 years that, uh, well, since the Canada Health Act, really, in 1984, that medically necessary medical services in Canada are provided out of the public purse, and the physician can't charge for it. If the doctor opts out of Medicare completely, they can do whatever they please, and some of them have done that. There are 
uh, private GP clinics in Vancouver where you just pay as you go, and they don't look to government for any uh, compensation at all. The controversy comes up legitimately when somebody says, well, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, and if you want to come to see me, you've got to pay extra on top of what I'll bill the medical services plan. That's not acceptable. That's been illegal for decades. And the NDP have decided today that they're going to make a big fuss out of this. There's nothing new about this. And British Columbia, as uh, they have been saying, is uh, subject to having deductions made by the federal government related to this. The question the NDP don't want to answer is if they get rid of the capacity in the private clinics for things like MRIs, where are the people going to go for these services? And there's a big confusion between uh, doctors and clinics that have completely opted out of MSP, which can do whatever they want to, that's lawful in Canada, and those that are double billing which is inappropriate and illegal. So the NDP are addressing this all up as one big issue in which they will defend the, uh, the ability of Canadians to get uh, Medicare services free of charge at the point of service. That's always been the case. There is nothing new about that. So within the intricacies you've pointed out, there is a public sensitivity between sort of the public-private aspects of healthcare delivery. How do you negotiate sort of cracking down on those people who are doing something wrong under the law and sort of keeping people, uh, I don't know what the word is, at bay or whatever the term is, and making sure that they're reassured that the public system is going to be there for them. Yeah, and I think the the big challenge, Sean, is to make sure that we're dealing with the capacity in the system. And when somebody's waiting for an MRI for a year, they say, well, I wish I could just pay a few hundred bucks and get this done on my own next week. And that's what's been set up in British Columbia for more than a decade now. And clinics that are truly private, that are outside the medical services plan, can go ahead and do that. If you shut all of that down, then where are these MRIs going to get done? Which means you've got to put a whole bunch more public money into the system. So the challenge has been to make sure that British Columbians are reassured that they are getting medically necessary services in a reasonably prompt way, and that if it's something that's not that important and doesn't require urgent medical care, that they have the option of going and spending their own money in a truly opted-out clinic. That's how it's been for a couple of decades here. And so the NDP are trying to dress this up as something new when it is, in fact, a very old story. All right. Uh, You guys are heading back after a spring break. Uh, The legislature will resume on Monday for what's planned to be a three-week schedule. Uh, But other than the budget and some odds and ends, not a whole lot done in the first couple weeks. And there's going to be an avalanche of stuff coming at us, Andrew, as you know, and not the least of which is the marijuana deal. So uh, can can we see a legislative session that's going to be within that three weeks? Or is there so much stuff uh, something's got to give here? Well, we have a problem with the NDP is they brought in the budget and the throne speeches they're required to and some fairly minor legislation and managed to just kind of rag the puck for six weeks and so far in the spring session. This is a a government that's not very well organized. They talk a big line, but they have trouble actually delivering in the kind of management and administration sense. We're seeing that in their child care plan, which is turning into a big fiasco because they didn't work with the private care operators who provide tens of thousands of spaces in this province and they're now having a fight with them. Their affordable housing plan is going nowhere because they've said they're going to build 1,700 units when 60,000 people move here every year. And so what we've seen is a government that has actually not delivered very much at all this calendar year, except to raise our taxes by $3.8 billion to give us the highest-priced gasoline in Canada, to pile on taxes related to real estate, and to start taxing people's assets. 
And so this is a government that's not performing very well. And their challenge in the next six weeks in the legislative session that runs through till the end of May is to do something that's actually useful to British Columbians. They've talked about the marijuana legislation. There'll be a big pile of that. Whether or not it's ready is unclear. And, you know, if you talk to the average British Columbian in uh, Kamloops or Cranbrook or Kelowna and say, so do you think it's a real priority for government to sort out what's going on with marijuana? Or would you rather them focus on road safety and health care and education and get the child care plan sorted out? It's pretty obvious what the answer is. And yet we have a government that's misplacing its energies by focusing on marijuana rather than on basic services for British Columbians. But don't they have to have a marijuana regime in place, Andrew, when the federal government pulls the trigger? Is there not a provincial responsibility there? There is, but at the same time, this is something that has been anticipated for more than a year, and it's the sort of thing where if the legislation can be handed around at a reasonably early date, we can have a good look at it and figure out whether it needs to have extensive debate or not. We have seen nothing from them. And so what's going to happen is they're going to ambush us with a great big pile of legislation dealing with marijuana when you have to think, is that really where the public's priorities are? A few people are very keen on marijuana legislation, and of course it has to get done, but it doesn't need to occupy the entire legislative agenda. There are actually more important things to do in British Columbia, like make sure we've got a prosperous economy, make sure our taxes are in reasonable order, and the NDP are not doing that, and make sure that we're getting the health, education, social services we need from a responsible government. I noticed the NDP are attacking you today with a release saying that you're insisting on uh, making some political hay out of the speculation tax, even though in the NDP's words, uh, Carol James has assured people that 99% of British Columbians won't be paying this thing. Uh, your, your thoughts on that? Well, the NDP are trying to bait people by saying if you're opposed to their speculation tax, you must be one of the wealthy, evil people. In fact, it is not a speculation tax. It has nothing to do with speculation. What it is is an asset tax, and the people who are going to get affected by it most immediately are the people buying condos in places like Kelowna and Vancouver and Victoria because their so-called speculation tax will pile on tens of thousands of dollars of extra costs into that condominium because when you take a big piece of land to put up a condo, that falls under the speculation tax and extra fees are added to the purchase of that condominium. So their affordable housing plan is anything but. The price of condos keeps going up and they're going to put it up even higher because of their speculation tax. Somebody has to pay the tax at the end of the day. It doesn't fall out of the sky. All right. Uh, last question to you. I understand you're going to be in Kamloops sometime next week. Yeah, I just had that conversation with folks in the hallway here. Going to be up for the BC Wildlife Federation AGM and sitting down with uh, my Kamloops colleagues, Peter Millibar and uh, Todd Stone. And I believe that may be with you. <laughs> That's right. We're going to look to get you on the show next week. Uh, looking forward to that. Uh, Andrew, appreciate this as always, sir, and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, and Peter and Todd and I will have that conversation of who's the legitimately most uh, Kamloops-based person. Now, I was there through elementary school, <laughs> and, uh, so let's get this story straight, gentlemen. Uh, Wilkinson's the most authentic Kamloops resident in the room. All right, consider the law laid down. We'll see you then. <laughs> All right, thanks, Andrew. Appreciate the best. it. Bye-bye. That was BC Liberals leader Andrew Wilkinson, and we're not done on the show yet. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, we'll sit down with Housing Minister Selena Robinson. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Real pleasure to be joined by the Housing Minister. Uh, always a pleasure to uh, talk to Selena Robinson, and yet you're in studio today, which is even better. How are you? I'm 
good. It's beautiful here in Kamloops. The sun is shining and the sky is blue, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, you're in Kamloops uh, making an announcement. Uh, what, what happened there? What was going on? Well, we uh, we just came from making an announcement of uh, just over $4 million uh, for TMO. Uh, this is the, and I'm never going to say it right, mm-hmm. the... Challenge. Yeah, I, I'm not going to say it right. I so took I'm a look not, at the name on the, yeah, on the yeah, release. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, I was going to get it right. I'm not going to. Um, but it's, it's 31 units of housing uh, for uh, youth aging out of care, Indigenous youth aging out of care, uh, who will be housed with, with elders. And so it's a very unique, innovative project that uh, has come together with um, the Aboriginal Housing Authority, the City of Kamloops, um, and uh, and TMO the. Uh, I wanted to ask you on that subject. Uh, sorry, uh, LMO. Sorry. LMO. LMO. Sorry. Here we are. Yeah, sorry, we'll it's been a long out. day. LMO. <laughs> so, um, and and um, what's what's unique about it is making sure that the people that people are supporting each other, right? It's about yeah. building community, and and that's I think what's fabulous about this project. Uh, what two aspects on that? Uh, number one, how important are the wraparound services? I've been talking a little bit to City Hall. Uh, the provinces, as I understand it, picking up the tab to. Uh, help out in a, a number of these projects where there's wraparound services available. Uh, is, is How important is that, and, and can you guarantee that over sort of future years, or how does that work well, out? Well, when you think when you think about youth aging out of care, these are these are youth who mm. have had certainly challenges, and we need to make sure that they have the services and the supports in order to be successful young adults. And uh, it has to come with the services that they need. And again, once we build the capacity of these communities so that they can continue to come back, and having elders right in residence is part of that support system is a, is a unique model, and it's going to be a very exciting project. Okay. Uh, the other aspect of that, and it's great that, that there's these projects to bring people up and to help them out of their circumstances, regardless of what those circumstances are. Uh, my question is, is what happens next? I mean, you, you've got this housing allocated, you're building more, fantastic. But how do you, what's the second phase of that to move these people along in their lives and then in turn open up that housing for other people of circumstance right. who need it? So um, what's really important is to have a comprehensive housing plan, which is what we've done with our 30-point plan that we announced in February of this year, mm. uh, recognizing that when you take a look at uh, affordable housing, and we know that there's a housing crisis right across the province, and in different communities it looks different. And so we need to make sure that we have sort of the kinds of range of housing that all kinds of people need. So when you think about when we're starting out, we often need to rent a place that we don't have the capacity to purchase right away. Uh, but if you have a near-zero vacancy rate, uh, like we have here in Kamloops, then uh, it becomes a challenge to move out of whether it's subsidized housing or your parents' basement, whichever it is. It becomes very difficult. So we need to make sure that we're supporting the private sector to build the kind of you know rental housing that we need to make sure that we uh, recognize when we need rental housing and that we're anticipating that. And so we've um, we're putting in, in legislation asking local governments, re- requiring local governments to do uh, a housing assessment, mm. making sure that they're paying attention and that we collectively are paying attention to what those needs are. We're also going to be bringing in legislation for rental-only zones Zoning, which is the first in uh, in in the in the country, so that local governments have the have the ability to rent for zone for for rental zoning, and that again will help protect existing stock, uh, bring on more more rental stock, and again when people are supported in their housing and they're ready to move into independent living, they can find the kind of rental housing that they need so that they are able to move forward in their lives. Uh, I wanted to take this issue up with you because I'm seeing more and more of it play out uh, uh, online, social media, things like that. And you talked about in Kamloops um, and, and certainly in Metro Vancouver, you have a, you have an extremely tight renter market. Uh, 
more so in Metro Vancouver, you're also faced with exorbitant rental costs. And what I'm seeing is people who are, for some reasons or other, um, being forced out of their rental units. Uh, in the case of Metro Vancouver, they're then faced with very little available option and or super uh, soaring prices, uh, which presents a dilemma. And then they are in turn turning around and seeing those units pop up on Airbnb. And I've seen a lot of that kind of complaints from people saying, hey, why is this unit I used to live in on Airbnb and I can't live in it anymore? So uh, from your perspective, A, is this a challenge and, and B, what can be done about it? Well, it's, it's certainly a challenge and we know that local governments have been struggling with this for some time and there have been some successful local governments who have been addressing it. Tofino has done an excellent job making sure that uh, anyone who's um, using their housing for Airbnb that it's appropriate mm. um, and that, you know, um, and, and making sure that they're, they're, they're tracking it. And Airbnb and other uh, platforms are now participating with the uh, provincial government by paying the appropriate taxes and, uh, you know, the ability to monitor it as well is, is really, really important. But really what we need to be doing and is making sure that, that those units are for the rental, uh, the long-term rental market. And we're looking at all, a whole range of ways to make sure that we're getting more rental available. So this certainly the speculation tax that we've introduced in our more urban centers helping to do that. Uh, but also trying to stimulate the development of purpose-built rental. And we're starting to see that in certain pockets. It's starting to come up. Um, and one of the, the the um, activities that I've undertaken is to reach out to the the, uh, the federal minister. I've had a conversation with him around uh, the opportunity to um, provide tax incentives to the development community so that there is a greater appetite to build purpose-built rental. So we need to do a many different things in order to, to deliver on that front. How do, you, how do you prohibit that stock from migrating into the Airbnb stuff? Well, that's where I kind of, because, you know, if, if I'm a landlord, I could rent out Airbnb to a threshold where the speculation tax doesn't apply to me because I am renting it out to a degree over a certain period of time every month if I can reach that threshold. Um, so how do you ensure that, that that stock doesn't go into Airbnb and remains into the rental market for these people? And, well, and the local government has a role to play because they could say you can't do that right you, you, that, that you're, you, you have to have a proper a proper business license yeah. in order to do that and it, they can they can deny you the business license so you're not using your property for what it's intended to be used for. Okay. And so that's the partnership that we have with local governments. Okay. So, uh, and safe to say there's going to be some more to come down the road on this. We are paying very, very close attention. Um, I was explaining to someone earlier today that we have this 30-point plan, but I have another 48 different ideas, policy, <laughs> legislative uh, ideas that are sitting on my, at the side of my desk for exploration, consideration, consultation. And so there's still lots of lots of opportunity for us to, to take a look at how do we make this housing, um, how do we make housing work for British Columbians? Uh, are we going to close the bear trust loophole? We're working on that one. It's uh, it's a significant problem, and I know that the Minister of Finance is um, paying attention to how to best do that, and it's it's critical. People have been asking for it for a very, very long time, and that's a piece of work that the, that the minister is undertaking right now. I know that you guys want to have more transparency about who owns what when Absolutely. it comes to land, so we don't have shell companies, all that kind of stuff. So we Absolutely. Know, you know, parcel A is owned by exactly whom. Exactly. So, uh, is how important in that 
concept and getting that done is closing the bear trust loophole. It's, it's critically important because we're missing out on the tax opportunities as well. So we know mm. that there's tax evasion tied to that. The other place where we're looking to capture information right now is the pre-sales. So with pre-sales, uh, I don't know how much of an issue it is here in Kamloops, but pre-sales are a significant issue in the Lower Mainland. Um, and we want to make sure that uh, that that is being recorded as well. So we have, uh, de so developers can be required to track who gets, who's, who's purchasing the pre-sales and how those get flipped over time. Again, there's um, some opportunities to capture some tax evasion practices. Okay. Uh, speculation tax, uh, obviously, we've had some tinkering to that, but uh, we, we've got it where we think we need to have it, I assume, from your perspective. 99% of British Columbians will not be affected by this. Okay. Um, my question is, 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 is my understanding of it is it's a home vacancy tax more than a speculation tax. So uh, I was talking to the fine people at the uh, CCPA, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, who, who said flat out there's still room to move to tax speculators. Are you guys looking at something to, to really target people who are flipping property? Because I don't think the speculation tax quite captures that. Well, the speculation tax, again, is around making sure that, that those people who choose to invest in, uh, in our housing market as a stock market uh, can have, have some choices. They can either pay the tax or they can rent it out for the long term. Um, in order to, you know, we want to make sure that we have opportunities for British Columbians who live and work and pay taxes in British Columbia have, have access to a home. And so we're going to be monitoring very closely how that how this plays out. And if there's additional measures that we need to take, then that's something I that our government's prepared to look at. Okay. Uh, we saw real estate activity slow uh, a little bit here in Kamloops, uh, down in Metro Vancouver. Is that a concerning sign to you? Is that a sign of we're accomplishing our mission? Or where do you fall on that? Well, at this point, it's it's very short, short term. My understanding around the real estate market is you have to take a much bigger picture look. And, you know, looking at one month or two months isn't certainly significant to let you know what's going on. Uh, but we're monitoring it very closely. This is a key peace for our government. We're very, very focused on a housing crisis and making sure that we're different communities that have different challenges can have the tools that they need and the opportunities uh, that they need in order to, to adjust um, the housing crisis so that it better meets you know, their families, their seniors on fixed income, uh, and the opportunity for, for families to, to grow and thrive. I know you're going to meet with uh, the mayor of Kamloops a little later today. Um, I don't know, I have no idea what you guys are going to talk about. I'm, I just out of curiosity, how are you having conversations with mayors who aren't currently in areas that are being taxed, either the foreign buyers tax or the speculation tax, to uh, to bring those in? There are certainly some mayors who are very interested in having it. Uh, I know that the mayor of Squamish has expressed some interest um, in uh, helping them sort out there at like a zero vacancy rate. It's pretty pretty significant uh, challenges. Um, so we're I'm always having conversations with with local governments. I mean, John Horgan had the sense of putting together um, the minister for local governments with the minister of housing. So it's under it's under one roof uh, mm -hmm. under my ministry because it's so tied. Housing is so tied to what local governments are doing that we need to be making sure that we're always in constant contact with with mayors throughout the entire province. All right, uh, that's about all my questions. Anything you want to Thank talk you. about? It's just it's just great to be here in Kamloops. It's just always so welcoming. People are so lovely, and it's uh, it's nice to see you again. Well, there's certainly a lot of people from Metro Vancouver lately who feel the same way. So. <laughs> and the sun is shining, which is the, like fabulous. Just <laughs> such a breath of fresh air. Selena, always a pleasure. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks. And that's it for today's version of Inside Politics. My thanks to my guests, Richard Zussman, Rob Shaw, Premier John Horgan, BC Liberals leader Andrew Wilkinson, and Housing Minister Selena Robinson. We'll see you here on Radio NL and Inside Politics next Friday. 
The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL, 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com.